Father in heaven, to you, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Forgive our impudence and impatience in trusting too much in the unworthy and unreliable wisdom of this world. Help us instead to wait by your trustworthy words, that we may be ready at the appearing of your Son, our Savior, Redeemer, Deliverer, and King. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the early 4th century, Emperor Maximian had a counselor named Menas. There was disturbance in the city of Alexandria, also one of the main centers of Christianity, way back in the 3rd century, uh, 4th century. Um, So Menas was sent on the emperor's behalf to bring peace to Alexandria. Here's what the emperor did not know about Menas. He was outwardly pagan. He played his role very well in the empire, but he was inwardly compelled toward Christ. When he got to Antioch, wait, did I say, what city did I say? Alexandria? It is Alexandria. Okay. I don't know why I said Antioch just now. I got all, yeah, okay. Alexandria. When he got to Alexandria, he brought peace to the city, and then he publicly professed himself a Christian. The emperor got word of this, and he was livid. So he sent uh, one of his governors, Hermogenes, to go and torture, to convince Menas that he made a mistake. Of course, you know, convince means torture. I'll make him an offer he can't refuse kind of thing. Um, So Hermogenes, sorry, these words, man. Hermogenes goes to convince Menas. And so he begins to torture him. He uh, interrogates him by shaving off the soles of his feet. Then his eyes are gouged out. And when Menas insists that he's a Christian, he rips his tongue out. But um, Hermogenes was moved by Menas's faithfulness and conviction to Christ, and that he went through all that and never gave in. He didn't know anybody who could be like that. So Hermogenes then declares himself a Christian. When the emperor got word of this, he said, I'm not going to send anybody else lest they become Christians. So the emperor marches himself down to Alexandria, and he begins to conduct the tortures of Menas and Hermogenes. Well, he begins to cut off the arms and legs of Hermogenes one by one. He remains faithful. He begins to run spears through Hermogenes one by one. He remains faithful. And on witnessing this, Menas's secretary, Eugrathus, then jumps in and says, wait, I am also a Christian. <laughs> and by now the emperor is furious. He simply draws his sword, runs it through Eugrathus, and then finishes off Menas and Hermogenes. In the fourth century, in a place known as Sebast, there was a station of Roman soldiers collected from all over the world. Forty of the soldiers at this station of Sebast were Christians which was a problem to all the generals. See, in these days, the generals would demand, prove your loyalty to the emperor by offering incense to the emperor. Of course, Christians got to a point where if the general commanded that, they would not do so. So 40 of the Christians of the outposts in Sebast were rounded up, 
and condemned to die of exposure. Sebast is a cold place. They were stripped naked. They were walked at midnight to, into a lake where they had to stand up to waist high in water. And there they were left to die in the freezing cold winter night. But to make things worse, just off on the shore, they lit a fire and prepared a warm bath in a hut. And let them know, at any time, you can walk out of this. This is your own doing. You can come into the hut and warm yourself. You just must let us know that you reject Christ and hail Caesar as Lord. (laughs) One by one, they begin to shiver and die. One of the soldiers watching them falls into a sleep. And he has a dream or he has a vision in which he sees an angel coming down after each saint dies, he's coming down with a crown and carries them up. These 40 had prayed before this that they would be strengthened to endure the sufferings together. 40 of them go into the water, 40 of them will die in the water. But when the soldier woke up, he realized that there were only 39 crowns brought down. And they saw one of the Christians making his way toward the hut. And the 40 or the other 39 were yelling after him, no, 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 40 entered the arena to wrestle and 40 will die in the arena together. But the apostate made it to the hut, warmed himself off and died shortly after that. What a waste. Um, But the soldier, moved by the faithfulness of these 39, jumped up and said, One has left the 40, count me in as the 40th. And the soldier walked into the water and died with the other 39. In 304 AD, Euplus, I hope I'm saying his name right, Euplus was a deacon in Sicily. Deacons were the ones who watched over the funds of the church and distributed them to those who were in need. He was arrested for being a Christian, and when he was brought in for trial, because what often would happen is they would arrest you for a Christian. They actually didn't want to kill anyone that was a Christian. They didn't want to torture them. All they wanted to do was get all these weird people to comply with loyalty to the emperor. That's all they wanted. So they would, they would round Christians up, imprison them, make them think about it a little bit, then bring him to trial, where basically there's an altar, and all they had to do was offer incense to the image of the emperor. That's all you had to do. They never said, they didn't necessarily say you had to stop going to your church, just please offer incense to the emperor so that we know you're loyal to the emperor. Christians would frequently refuse. I can imagine today how many would say, we can still worship Christ and just pinch a little incense. What's the big deal? Not in those days. That's not how they saw it. It's not how we should see it today. So Euplus comes to his trial carrying a Bible under his arm. As a deacon, he had one, which these were rare finds in the day. Not everyone had a Bible. The judge says, what is that you're holding? It's the gospel. Read it to me. So he opens up to Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The judge said, what does this mean? And Euplus says, 
This is the Lord's law, and I follow this Lord, Jesus Christ. was like, bring it on, because I follow him, even if he says, blessed are the persecuted. Well, U plus was put on the rack, which is basically a device meant to stretch you to your limits, a form of torture. And then the judge stopped and gave him time to reconsider. Do you still persist in this way? U plus said, what I said before I say again, I am a Christian and I read the Holy Scriptures. Judge, lay aside this foolishness and come adore the gods. You plus, I adore Jesus Christ and I detest those demons. Do what you want. Add new tortures, but I'm a Christian. So the judge said, why don't you adore Mars, Apollo, and Asclepius, and you'll go free. You plus, I adore the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit besides whom there is no God. Judge, just sacrifice to the gods a little, and we will set you free. You plus, I sacrifice myself now to Jesus Christ, my God. Then the tortures increased, and you plus kept repeating, I thank you, God. Jesus Christ, help me. It is for your name's sake that I endure these agonies. When he could no longer speak, he continued to pray by moving his lips. And finally, he was led out of the tortures to be beheaded. And as he was led out, he found the strength to keep crying out with joy. Thanks be to Christ, my God. Thanks be to Christ, my God. Thanks be to Christ, my God. One more. In AD 258, Archdeacon, uh, sorry, um, this, is, this is during the um, persecution of the Emperor Valerian, in Rome, uh, Pope Sixtus um, of Rome was arrested to be martyred. His deacon, Lawrence, remember deacons kept the funds, the treasures of the church and dis- distributed them fairly. Uh, his deacon, Lawrence, wanted to go with him. As Sextus is being taken away to be martyred, he's like, let me go with you. And Sextus looks back and says, no, my son, you will be arrested in three days. Your time will come. Sure enough, he was arrested in three days. Uh, And he was commanded by the emperor to hand over the treasures of the church. So in the time he was given to collect the treasures of the church and give them to the emperor, he took the treasures of the church and began to distribute them to all the needy, the poor, the lame, the blind in the city of Rome. And then he brought those poor, those needy, those rag muffins. He just found the poorest of the poor and the physically ill and sick and maimed and brought them with him and gathered them in a place where he knew the emperor would come meet him. And when the emperor came to demand the treasures of the church, Lawrence said, these, O emperor, are the treasures of the church, pointing to the poor, the blind, the maimed. (laughs) Needless to say, the emperor did not find that amusing. And in his rage, he took Lawrence and tortured him. Lawrence was stripped naked, put on a red-hot gridiron to be slowly roasted to death. Of course, all he had to say is, I deny Jesus, and it's all over. But instead, he cries out something else. And he says, after some time, you can turn me over now. I'm done on this side. Totally okay to laugh because there were times when our brothers and sisters who were 
suffering and tortured, did so with a sort of defiance toward the powers of this world. There is a pattern, and the reason I'm sharing these stories is not for the shock value or the entertainment value. Um, That would be a poor entertainment value at the expense of our brothers and sisters. Um, The reason I'm sharing these, rather, is so that we can get a sense of the, the courage with which they faced their persecutions and the infection that their courage brought upon others to watch someone being tortured and to compel you to say, I'm a pagan, but what I'm seeing makes me want to be a Christian. Include me. Baptism by blood, right? Um, But yes, the Christians were known not just for their courage and their willingness to suffer for Christ, but it was their contempt of death that they were most remarkably known for. Mocking death as it comes having no fear of it whatsoever, finding the ability to thank God, to praise God, to say, I can't believe I'm considered worthy to be in this moment. This is what turns, they're not just silently gritting their teeth and saying, just try not to complain because I hate this, or you jerks, just wait till Jesus comes back. None of these things are found in their mouths, only praise and thanksgiving. And if they did say anything to their opponents, it was always with humor. That's how contemptuous they were of death because they knew that Christ had emptied Hades, that the place of the dead no longer has power over God's people. They don't go there anymore. He barred the gates of Hades from his believers, that instead they go straight to where Christ is. They could be contemptuous toward death. You guys might know the famous Polycarp martyrdom because I think it's like the first story in the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Polycarp had said something to the effect of um, when they were going to burn him at the stake. He's like, oh, you have any last words, Polycarp? Maybe you can recant. I have last words, O emperor. You burn me with temporary fire, but you will burn an eternal fire. At that, he shrieked and, burn him, burn him now! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, early Christians were known for something that we find foreign. Because we haven't had the opportunity to see this, We've lived in a time of peace for which we thank God. But what we have seen are other sides of ourselves that make me so concerned and wonder if we can ever be like our heroes before us. Because this is frankly how I live, and I know you too, because I'm at least half the complainer one of you are. (laughs) I don't know who that person is, just kidding. Um, When the Wi-Fi goes out, it's a bad day, and I pout. It's not just because you got to do your work. Sometimes that's a nice excuse not to do it, but it's because, cool, I don't have to work. Oh, but all my fun's on the internet too. (laughs) My whole life's on it. For some of us, like it's a big deal. We pout when the internet goes out or when there's an item out of stock. You might know that Trader Joe's has had a lot of their stuff not on the shelves because there are ships in the middle of the sea somewhere that can't, there's not enough people working to unload cargo and stuff. It's like, no, my fig butter is not there. Or I heard a woman say that in the store. I, I didn't complain. <laughs> um, or, or our Amazon Prime package didn't make it in the two-day guarantee because we live in the mountains and what? There was like a little drizzle of fog and they, they couldn't make it up here? What in the world? Like this is our attitude toward minor sufferings. Minor sufferings. And we don't bear these well. Early Christians 
lived a sort of life that wouldn't allow these little things to get under their skin because they would focus on what matters and they would train their souls for what matters. What made them so courageous? Now, in fairness, we haven't had to be courageous. I don't want to scare us or give these doomsday messages. I'm not a fan of that. But I truly believe in my heart that we are going to see, not all of us perhaps, um, but some of us will see a day when the Christian name will be persecuted. I mean, we see soft bullying today. The church is bullied very softly. And we see churches just totally like, ah, uncle! Because we, we want to keep the masses coming. I wonder what's going to happen when things get a little more intense. And goodness, it only takes a generation for the entire infrastructure of our country to flip. I mean, we've seen changes at a fast rate already. Do you know what's going to happen when the godless generation takes over? Because we still have baby boomers ruling the nation, right? Well, it's coming when they will no longer be ruling. And are you scared? Well, I don't know that we should be scared. Our ancient brothers and sisters faced life with courage, and they had it way worse. I think we can do this. But what did they know? What does Paul know? What does Timothy know that we need to know? See, Paul is writing in 2 Timothy, his second letter to Timothy. You might remember he dropped him off in Ephesus to take over. Um, He would have been the pastor of all the pastors in Ephesus. And he would have been correcting false teaching, leading them into the right way. And um, this is now Paul's second letter because what has happened in the meantime is that Paul has been re-imprisoned. You might remember at the end of Acts, he was in prison once. He was released. He did some ministry around the place and uh, (laughs) the world, and uh, then he was imprisoned again. But this time, Nero was the emperor on the throne, and Nero is the first to persecute Christians. Paul has a sense that this isn't going to end well for him. If you want a hint of that, you see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says this. This is 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So he's awaiting trial. It sounds like he knows what the verdict will be. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to put me all, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We're writing in a time of suffering, and every chapter of Second Timothy seems to allude to this idea of persecution, people turning away from God of suffering. Um, Timothy heeds his message. Because Timothy, according to church tradition, dies in 97 AD at the hands of Ephesian rioters. You know from the book of Acts that Ephesus knows how to riot. They throw good riots, right? College throws good parties. Ephesus throws great riots. And they, uh, they were really mad at Timothy because he opposed the feast of Artemis, their, their chief deity, which Ephesus was made famous for. And so they killed him. The throng killed him. So... Timothy learns what Paul wants to share with him in this letter. And so here, despite this suffering that Paul finds himself in and knows that Timothy's going to find himself in, this letter still has Christ explicitly mentioned in every chapter, as was the case in 1 Timothy. There's not a new strategy, in other words, like, oh, Christ is the problem. Christ is bringing suffering. No, it's 
Christ is still what we're going to hold on to here. He is our hope. And there are still trustworthy sayings to be given. There were two that we studied in 1 Timothy. There's another one here in 2 Timothy. So let's read it. It's going to be in 2 verse 11, but I want us to start at the top of chapter 2 so you can get a sense of his fuller message. He's talking about enduring suffering. So chapter 2 verse 1. You, Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's where you see his role as a pastor over the pastors. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. For example, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So be devoted, Timothy. Christ has called you. Be devoted. Don't be distracted. Be devoted. And another example, verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So stick with what Christ has shown us. Stick with the rules. Don't disqualify yourself. Another example, verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. You keep at it. You suffer as a farmer suffers in waiting. You will be rewarded. Verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So be strengthened. That was the first command in verse 1. Now verse 8, his second command. Remember Jesus Christ. So if you're going to share in suffering, what do you need? You need to be strengthened first. But second, you need to remember him who gives you strength. And not only he who gives you strength, but Christ is also our example of suffering and faithfulness. The way he took the cross. He did not threaten his persecution. If anyone could have threatened persecutors, just you wait till my dad hears about this. Like he didn't say anything like that. Or wait till I come in glory. He forgave his persecutors. So remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Remember Jesus is of the lineage of King David, and that's an important part that the early church continued to talk about. He not only rose from the dead, he's part of the Davidic line, which shows us God's faithfulness to bring Christ, even when it seemed like the Davidic line was ruined. God kept his promises in the Old Testament in Christ. Um, So he's risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul does not mean my gospel is different from Peter's gospel or James's gospel or anyone else's gospel. He means all those people in Ephesus have their weird, wonky, new ageism thing going on. Just kind of modernize it, I guess. Uh, The gospel I taught you. That's the one to stick with. That's what he means by my gospel. It's the gospel. For which, verse 9, for which I am suffering. It's that gospel I am suffering for. Bound with chains as a criminal. Cling, cling, cling. You hear that, Timothy? This is shame. The cross was shame. Criminals were killed on crosses. Paul, a Roman citizen, can't be killed on a cross. Citizens weren't allowed to be. He was shackled in chains. Like Christ, I am bearing a mark of shame. I'm a criminal in the emperor's view. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That's God's people. 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What he's saying is, I am enduring the suffering not only so that people can become saved, but so that the saved can also endure and not deny Christ if suffering comes to them. That I can be an example. We've seen from church history, I gave you guys a few examples of how martyrdom brought people to the faith. And so that I can encourage them as they see me suffering for their sake. They'll remember, oh wow, Paul could do it, Christ could do it, we could do it. So, um, verse 11, here it is. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. The saying is trustworthy. So we first saw uh, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Then Paul adds, of whom I am chief. Then second, we saw train yourself for godliness. For godliness, this was the saying, godliness has profit both now and in the life to come. Whereas bodily exercise only has profit in this life. So there's a call to training yourself for godliness. And now this one. This one comes, all of these have this, this ring of a saying, a proverb-like ring or like almost like a line from a creed or something. They have like this, this stature of like, you can tell Paul's quoting something. This one even more particularly so. Uh, most translations have done this because the Greek implies it. They've put it in lines like a poem or like a hymn. You notice that in your Bible? It suddenly breaks into uh, lines like a hymn. Because it is widely believed that Paul is now quoting a well-known hymn in the church, something that they would have sung frequently. Because there's no introduction to it. Timothy, remember that one that we sing every now and then, or Bob led it last time? Like, no, there's just, he just quotes the hymn. They know this one. This is one that flows out of their being. It's one of those key hymns. We have those in our own church. We have, you have those in your own lives, those, those words you hold to. And you hold to them because they're trustworthy words. And here are some trustworthy words. So the first line, if we have died with him, he will also, we will also live with him. What this means is that Christ is our life. If we die with him, we will live with him. So my lows and my highs go together with Christ. My death and my birth go together, birth of new life, go together with Christ. He is our life. He's not an add-on <laughs> to our lives. It's not like Jesus is just kind of, we live, before I was a Christian, I did these things and I thought this way, but now I added Christ, who gives me a little bit more morality in the way I'm living and the way I'm thinking. Oh, and he brings me now comfort because this is a really anxiously fraught world, so now I feel a little better. And like, I have this, like, it's really cool. I have, it's almost like an app on your phone. I just have Jesus in my heart to counsel me and give me therapy when I need it. Huh? That's Jesus as an add-on. Is Jesus an add-on? Paul is saying, no, he's not an add-on. He is your very life. 
that when you're baptized into Christ, old Brandon dies. He's dead in the water, and you come up a new creation. As the, new he- as the heavens and the earth came up out of the waters in Genesis, you come up out of the waters. As Christ came out of the waters and then led his spirit-empowered ministry on this earth, we come out of the waters and are filled with the Spirit. This is, you died. That old way of living, that old way of thinking has changed because now your life, if you died, like, how are you now alive? You have to have life from something else, someone else. Your life is in Christ. His very life, his very resurrection life, his triumph over death and over sin is now in you. When you come out of your baptism, when you come out of your conversion to Christ, you are not you anymore. You are Christ in you. And that is the true you, the supercharged you. That is Brandon 2.0. That is Brandon as he was created to be. I can't just go on and say, well, I'm just going to keep living my life. But now I got Jesus in the back seat. It's awesome. Jesus is our life, is what he's saying. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. We are that intricately connected. And Paul, if you want to read more on this, Paul in Romans 6 just basically teaches on that concept. He, he breaks it down, the whole chapter of Romans 6. The second line, if we endure, we will also reign with him. In other words, endurance is your test. If we endure in this life, we will reign with him in the kingdom to come. So in the kingdom, we will reign with Christ over this kingdom. That's really cool. God's waiting for your resume. (laughs) He's waiting for your resume. And it's not, well, I went to church every week. It's if we endure with him, we will reign with him. Who are the ones worthy of ruling in the kingdom? Paul is saying those who endure with him. So the one who says, oh, no, 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 I'm, a, I'm, I'm not brave enough to, to go through with this. I'm going to jump out of the lake and go in that hut. Is that guy fit to rule the kingdom of heaven? He's more centered on himself and preserving his life. Now, I mean, there were some people who would later then recant their recantation and like come back to Christ and like do so in such a way that it'd be publicly martyred as they did so. In a sense, like, I don't know, like, like I just kind of just said, redo, I, I was weak, but now I'm strong, redo. <laughs> Maybe that can happen, yes. But for the most part, it's our endurance and suffering, which is training the soul to become something new. I am, yes, I am in Christ, I have a new life, but I'm not immediately made into Christ-likeness. It's through the hardships that I go through that build me up. And I don't just mean like my Wi-Fi went out hardship or I lost my job hardship. Those things do help you if you handle them well. But in all the ways that every day we die to ourselves. For other people, we serve others. Are we constantly living a life that is about protecting me? Or is it about how can I give myself away to others today? That's one way we endure. Suffering is before us every day. Suffering is simply letting go of your control over yourself. And when we do this well every day, we are then primed and strengthened for the larger tests. I mean, these early Christians weren't just thrown in arenas and, and all of a sudden they like found some, like they dug deep and found something they never knew they had. They were in the practice of loving one another. They were in the practice of fasting together. They were in the practice of denying themselves the worldly comforts so that their soul can be toughened because they knew they may have to endure for Christ. 
Third line is the warning. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Jesus says that as well in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. I forgot to write it down. I think it's 10, verse 33. He he says the same thing. If you deny me, my heavenly father will also deny you. Um, This is what it says in scripture. Now, if you accidentally... Okay, well, if you have not tempered your soul in such a way that you want to be faithful to Christ and therefore accidentally deny him, um, is there still a way back? Perhaps. Um, It's not like saying, like, this is your, like, one-way ticket to hell. That's not what Paul's saying. It's the reality that if if you deny Christ, what makes you think that you're going to be recognized in the kingdom of God? But Jesus forgave me of my sins. Yeah, but you didn't accept it. He didn't promise that your life would be rosy because your sins are forgiven. Paul says, if we deny him, he will deny us. And then the fourth line, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Uh, that could mean that, okay, sometimes we'll be faithless, but God will, God will be faithful to us and say, yeah, I understand you are weak. It could mean that, but more likely, to be honest, as much as I want to treat that way, it seems to me that what Paul is saying is, Despite everyone who falls away, it doesn't change who God is. He cannot deny himself. So it doesn't matter if nine-tenths of the Christians in America in a coming year say, oh, this is too much. This is not the Christianity we signed up for. Oprah didn't warn me about this. Um, If that happens, then nine-tenths fall away. I'm just throwing out a number, okay? I have no idea what it'd be. Um, Paul's saying, like, God does not suddenly look less glorious because of that. God is who he is. He's not offended. He's not hurt. He's not injured by our faithlessness. He is still who he is. So why don't you consider that in suffering? He is who he is. All I have to win is by being faithful to him who will not fail me. Nothing changes him. Those who fall away, those who persecute him, whatever the powers say about who he is or blame blah, 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 all the problems in the world because of the church, blah, 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 which is so bogus arguments from university. Anyways, um, he is not changed. He is who he is. That's what he told Moses. I am that I am, or I will be who I will be, or I am who I will be, or I will be who I am. The the Hebrew there has absolutely no one way to define that. It's just the whole, I don't change. And nothing changes me. And I am not God is not moved by passions of, oh, oh yeah, you, you offended me. So that's, I believe, and other, most commentators, actually everyone I read, agreed that that's what that is saying in that fourth line. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. It doesn't change God. So it behooves us to get underneath God's wings, not to say, well, God, like, if, I, if everyone's falling away, I'm going to fall away because you're going to be, like, merciful toward that, right? Like, you're going to grade us on a curve, right? Like, sure, Larry was really holy, but the rest of us weren't there. So, like, you know, the rest of us kind of going to sneak, right? That's not what he's, yeah, that's not what God's like. It's a call to come under the faithful, unmovable God. So Timothy learned this lesson. He was martyred. We know so many millions of brothers and sisters who were martyred learned these lessons. But here's, the, here's where the rub comes. We live in a world that does not teach what Paul is saying here. These are trustworthy words. These are also rare words. And they're even rare. They're rare also in the church. I, I mean, full confession. I looked at this passage. And I'm like, do I really have to teach this one? I committed to teach you guys the trustworthy sayings. I can't skip it because it's inconvenient or because it's hard. 
Because here's where our culture is. Now, I did gladly, by the way. Just don't think I was grunting through this whole thing. I gladly taught it. But it's harder because we don't do this a lot. And we don't experience suffering a whole lot. Um, what was I saying? Sorry. I totally, like, opened up a can there with you, didn't I? Um, we, live in a, thank you, we live in a world that, and even churches, that don't want to teach about suffering. So what, what our culture, what the world tells us is that suffering should be escaped. Difficulties are obstacles getting in the way of you becoming your happiest, most fulfilled self. For example, you're fighting with your spouse again? Why don't you just dump that loser? It's clearly not good for you. That is just street advice in the world today. Oh, the kids, I know, kids can totally drive me up the wall. Just dump them in a daycare and do your thing. Daycares, of course, have their place if you work, but you know, I hear the context there. They're driving me nuts. Get rid of them for the day, and then you put them in bed at night. Like, this is our mentality, is that there's difficulties that we must avoid, that the good life is a life without suffering. Oh, holiness is too demanding? Let your pastor do that for you. That's a Christian version of it. But here's what Paul tells us in this trustworthy saying. The good life is not free from suffering. And you and I are not autonomous little individuals running around seeking to have the most pleasurable, happy life we can. That's not what we're here for. First of all, we're not autonomous beings. We belong to Christ's body. We are his. And he did not guarantee the good life was going to be free of suffering. Quite the contrary. He promised the good life will bring suffering. The Beatitudes promised it. You might remember way back, almost a year ago from today, a couple weeks, a year ago, um, we, we looked at the Beatitudes. And we, we, the word Beatitude, you might know, blessed Macarius, that refers to the good life in Christ. Not the stuff he gives us, the good life in him. That's why the Beatitudes invite us to being poor in spirit, mourning your sin, and, and being persecuted. Because this is the good life in Christ. Why? How in the world is this a good life? You guys, you Christians have a sick version of the good life. Well, because I, as I was born, am not capable of handling a good life. I cannot handle the infinite glories of God as a fallen, trapped in sin and vice human being. I can't handle it. It will literally kill me. Because God is that much greater but that what Christ does is he invites us to follow him. And we follow him. And they're like, he's going up Mount Calvary. There's a cross there. (laughs) Why does he lead us there? Because the only way to the resurrection life that death cannot touch, that gives us a contempt toward death and a courage in the face of darkness, the only way to get to that resurrection life is through the cross. Jesus did not say, all right, Father, Holy Week is here. Um, Let's simulate the cross and let's get to Easter Sunday because that's what I'm excited for. You can't get to Easter Sunday if you don't die with Christ on the cross. It is through the suffering that my old self dies and wastes away. I have to, in that moment, let go of him. This is no longer my hope. I am being, he is being crucified out of me. 
so that I can be raised in Christ's new life. And this is what the Christian soul is becoming, is that we're becoming creatures, beings who are capable of receiving the eternal glory to come in such a way that it will not crush us, that we will actually have shoulders to hold it with and rule and reign with Christ. We will have feet that can walk on the realities of the glories of the kingdom. We will become more real than the door which Jesus walked through after his resurrection. It wasn't him who was a ghost. The door was a ghost compared to his solidity in the life to come. That's why Christ says the good life will have suffering because I want you to become like the creature I made you to be in the Garden of Eden, but you have sinned your way out of Um, So Christ does not call us to escape suffering. He calls us to embrace it. That's the difference between the world and us. We don't escape suffering, nor do we bring it on. Like saying, all you idiots, we're so right. And then you get persecution. Well, you deserve that. And that's not good for you because you, that's just a consequence of your stupidity. Um, We don't, we don't seek out suffering. We embrace it when it comes. If God brings persecution, we embrace it. If God brings these hardships in your life, we embrace it. We embrace it. I, I'm talking to someone who is having a really, a situation in their marriage where it'd be really easy to just walk out of and say, stupid, like, I don't have, I, the point of life is to escape this stuff. But instead, the power of Christ is on this person and they want to embrace what has been given to them. And they are being transformed in the midst of that arena. And it doesn't matter what the end it comes out to. Does, does God do what we want him to do or not? We are being formed. We embrace the suffering he brings us. Christ is not a therapist. He will help us. But he's not just a therapist. He's a Lord. And if we don't suffer, if we're only, sorry, because we may not have the opportunity to suffer. Um, if we're not willing to suffer for him, Your faith is inauthentic. Your faith is therapy. Just helps you feel better and sleep at night. Your faith is a theory. It is the blood of martyrs that proved the reality of Christ. That's why the early church is strong. They sought Christ and his substance. Okay. So here's how I want to end this. I want to talk about training for suffering. Because you may not know this, but we're being trained every day. Every day we are being trained and told what to love and what to live for. And if you're not aware of that, then you're being trained by forces you wish, you probably wish you weren't being trained by. We're bombarded with thousands of messages a day, they say. The experts count this up and say whether it's advertising or on your phone or in the news or on the television or people you talk to or shirts you run into or cars you see driving, you are hit by messages thousands of times a day. And all of these are telling you, they're not just there like, I'm neutrally a nice car. No, the nice car, for those that are drawn in this way, the nice car is telling you, this is what you need to want. This will make you better. This will make you cooler. That's a message. Now you can reject that message or you can want that message. There are messages every day telling us what to love and how to live. These are not neutral statements. They are all calling us to action. And so is the gospel. 
Celebrities, music industry, malls, stores, advertisements, entertainment, social media, the news media, and more are all telling us what to live for and what to love. What made Christians so contemptuous of death? They had robust ways of defending themselves against these messages of the world. That's what made them tough. I don't know, I don't know that Christians everywhere have this defense against what the world's telling us to do. I see so much of the world in us. I see so much of the world in me. I see so much of the world that if we're not careful, it's getting into us sideways. And, well, to just call the spade a spade, like, the news is one of the most sneaky ways because we have like our, our political affiliation and we think that it's God sanctioned. And so we think that by getting riled up by the news and like knowing what should happen in the world, we're like doing God's will sort of like by way of, I don't know, like letting God do it through our complaining at the television or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but brothers and sisters, the news is teaching you what to love and the news is teaching you what to live for. And that is never the good news. It's a far cry from the good news. So yes, we can justify that there's a lot of good that we're coming, that's coming out of this, but frankly, we are being hijacked by so many forces coaching us and training us to love this or live for that. We must be on guard as early Christians were. So Paul tells us to do this by, in verse 8, remembering Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. All of that is one sentence in the Greek. The heading is remember Jesus Christ. So how did the early Christians do this? They remembered Jesus Christ. Guys, I don't have like some huge secret for you. We need to remember Christ because what happens is we don't remember him day to day. We get hijacked by needs or by, oh, did you see what Elon Musk said? And then suddenly we think like we need to dump stocks because he's dumping stocks. I don't know. I talked to somebody who said like that literally happens in their life. So like, wait, but remember Christ. Like, because yeah, that's an innocent little thing. But what happens when over and over unguarded, we allow these messages to continue to tell us to do before you know it, you're lusting after power, be a powerful man, or to, to earn this money, or to be the cutting-edge guy, like, I've got all the cool stuff before everyone else has it. We have to watch the messages. And the early church did this by remembering Jesus Christ. Um, remembering Christ sounds backward, doesn't it? It's like, no, give us forward-thinking advice. Like, how do we get to handle the stuff that's to come? And Paul's like, look backward at Jesus. Remember what he went through for us. Remember how he lived. Remember him whose life you share and whose death you share. That's the answer. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, the way to persevere and the way to move forward in the future is to always look backward and to sink our roots deeper in what has always been true. The trustworthy words are what we need. And Paul is calling for a putting your roots deeply into Christ. Remember the parable of the sower? It was the seed that fell in the rocks. It grew fast, but because it had no root, the sun came and it withered away. It had no root. Christians need roots. We need roots. And more often than not, uh, at least in the... Well, there's a lot of the church, I should say, that's looking forward for new gimmicks and ways to get people of Jesus. And Paul, all the while, in the Bible all the while, saying, just get your roots in Christ 
and the fruit will come. The fruit will come. So how do we remember Christ? Three ways. Remember Christ by fulfilling your heart, by filling your heart with trustworthy words like these. Fill your heart with trustworthy words. This means we read the scriptures. We read them daily or as much as you can. Whatever you can do, get in the word and fill your heart. For some of us, that actually means go over one passage all week. Or it means keep reading steadily through. But get scripture in your heart. Get the songs of our faith in your heart. Paul here quotes this hymn. And now it's in scripture. Do you have those parts, scriptures, songs, prayers that you can just recall? If, if not, there's not much filling your heart in the way of Christ. I, I think about... Um, um, whatever you rehearse and repeat in your heart is whatever will come out of you in crisis. You think about that? So people sometimes, it happens all the time as a pastor, so funny, the way people get about their language around me. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll slip out a cuss word, like, oops, so sorry. Like, it was an accident. Or like, I, I wouldn't have if I remembered you were here or something like that. Um, but here's the truth. That came out because you rehearsed and repeated that phrase in your heart. You may not always say it, but when you stub your toe, the chair is something blankety-blank, or the dogs, you know, whatever, and so forth. You got what I'm saying. We rehearse these things so they come out of us, or other things. When the pressure comes, uh, we, we've been rehearsing this, this fantasy of, of uh, dropping something that's hard, and so when someone else is going through something hard, they say, oh, you should drop it, even though you're not maybe doing that in your own life, but you're rehearsing these fantasies, and so they come out of us. What we're filling our hearts, we are rehearsing and repeating. And they are what come out of us in the moment. When Paul's reaching for an example, a trustworthy word for Timothy, be a good soldier, endure suffering, have strength, remember Christ. He just reaches for this hymn. And maybe he's even like mid-hymn. Just here are the lines of this hymn. Those of you who have things in your heart know the value of having those at reach. And man, you hear stories of Christians who go to prison uh, from communist Russia, um, so many accounts of those that just people flocked to those who had scripture memorized because that was all they had. It, sh- it shapes us, guys. It shapes us when we fill our hearts. So what songs do we listen to? Is there anything wrong with listening to, goodness, I'm so out of the loop now, you know, your favorite folk band or whatever? No, absolutely not. I am not that person who says you have to listen to Christian music. Like, music is beautiful, whoever writes it. Not all the music's beautiful, but there's a lot of beautiful music. But make sure you keep Christian songs in your heart. Don't overweigh it. Um, or just pray, like, hymns and their lyrics. Sometimes, like, that's rad. I don't know all the words to hymns, but sometimes I'll just, like, read over one. And you can pray that wonderful hymn. Okay, um... Remember Christ by, fulfill, by filling your heart with trustworthy words. Second, remember Christ by honoring the chains of those who suffer for him. Honor the chains of those who suffer. Paul says this. Bound with, the, with these chains as a criminal. Paul, or P, uh, P, Timothy, remember my sufferings, shaking the chains, and they glimmer. Remember these And as we look and remember the brothers and sisters I shared with you guys about at the beginning, 
and we get to know some of the others, or you read the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs, or I know William has been reading um, the DC Talk one. Um, What's it called? Jesus Freaks? Stories of Martyrs. Um, man, as we, as we honor those who wear the chains of Christ, it gives us courage. It gives us connection in a way. Like, wow, we can do that too. So Paul's saying, look, you can do this because I am doing this. But here's something beautiful. It's St. John Chrysostom, in his sermon on this text, um, he had this line, and it was so memorable. I was like, I gotta, we got to use this one. This is what he says about Paul's chains here. He says, I say and will not cease to repeat it, though bound with a chain, yet Paul smote him, Nero, that was invested with a diadem. Such is the power of Christ The chain surpassed the kingly crown, and his apparel was shown more brilliantly than that. Paul, clothed in filthy rags as the inhabitant of a prison, he turned all eyes upon the chains that hung on him rather than eyes on the purple robe of Caesar Nero. And he, Caesar, before whom all feared and trembled, was trampled down by one solitary man in chains. See then how great was the brightness of these very chains. Brothers and sisters, what do we value? Do we value celebrities? Do we value the millionaires and billionaires of our culture? Do we look at, oh, what are their life hacks? I want to live like that. Do we care about what they're wearing, driving, doing, saying, thinking their philosophies, their books? Do we we care about these Maybe you have some interest, that's fine. Or do you care about the real celebrities who wear the chains? The chains of Paul outshone the purple robes of Nero, is what Chrysostom said. And that's what we must see. What is the glittering gold in the Christian's life? The one who suffers or the one who has the glory of the world? We must readjust our value. So we remember Christ by honoring those who wear chains for him. And then third, We remember Christ by worshiping him in such a way that he forms us. We worship Christ in such a way that he is doing the forming in us. I fear that worship has suffered in our age. Because increasingly, Christianity is being presented and taught and used as a therapy for scared modern souls. So what happens is worship has become therapeutic. Worship is about making us feel better. We want to come into church and we want to get something out of it. We want to be comforted and coddled by Christ. Don't get me wrong. He does that. But Worship is not coming to him to be coddled and comforted. That's just saying, Christ, affirm me where I am. Affirm me where I am, the scared little child. Don't grow me up too fast. I, I'm not, I don't want to do that. That's too hard. I don't want to suffer. So we come to worship about thinking about what we can get out of it rather than what we can give to it. Consider that. When we come to worship God, is the worship of a king about, what can you give me, king? Are you kidding me? You come before a king to give him gifts. That's what you do when you come to a king. You offer him. 
as God did in the Old Testament. When the children of Israel draw near to me, this is Leviticus 1 verse 1, when Moses, tell the children when they draw near to me that they are to do so, and the rest of the book tells you how to draw near to God. In every instance, God commands a specific offering to bring. This is how we worship the king. We bring something to worship. We bring our hearts. We bring our lives. We bring our surrender. We bring our, as we begin the service, with thanksgiving and praise. That's how we give back to God all he's given to us. This is our reasonable act of worship, Paul said in Romans 12 verse 1, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. It's not about what we can get out of worship. It's about what we bring and give to worship. Um, And by the way, when we say, our worship service is at five o'clock. In, in, in much of Christianity today, I hope this is not you, but if it is, that's fine. You could change your heart. <laughs> but in much of Christianity today, oh, the worship service. We think of the worship service as the pastors serving the people to help them with their needs. Like, I just need a, a dose of joy, so you better have a joyful message for me. The service is about you being served, is the idea in modern America. Worship service is not that. It's about us coming to serve God. That's what worship is. We come to minister to him and to give him his glory and his worth and his due. Now, brothers and sisters, that's not to say God doesn't care about how you feel. But as we come and give our lives to him and worship the king of kings, all the other stuff gets taken care of. And here's the extra benefit is that we are formed and shaped with his power when that happens. When we come to him rather than just demanding, well, you've got to meet me in these knees and the worship team better sing my favorite song or they better not do that confession stuff tonight because I don't feel good about myself when that happens. Sorry if you thought that. Um, yeah, service. Um, we call, here's a, here's a really showing one. Um, we call our worship spaces auditoriums instead of sanctuaries. Think about what that means. Auditoriums are for concerts. They're for entertainment sanctuaries are sacred places designated for the worship of the king. Um, I'm not sure what the conference center labeled on this room, but we never refer to this as the auditorium. This is the sanctuary. Praise God. Um, But you can treat it like an auditorium when your interaction on Sunday nights is between you and Pastor Brandon's message. That's your interaction. Great. I hope we're having interaction, but in the larger scheme, we should have the whole 40 minutes before my message had interaction with God. And in this message, we should be having interaction with God. And in communion in a moment, we should have interaction with God. That's a sanctuary. The people interact with God. An auditorium is the people interact with the performer. Worship is neither for us or about us. It is for God and it is about God. I know that sounds obvious, But when you start to break it down and you begin to wonder, are we really doing this? Um, Part of what we need to understand is that worship doesn't start with us in the first place. Worship doesn't start when I start to express my love to God. I hope you know that. Worship started before you got here. Because worship starts with God and his action. It's God who works. God created a space. He built a church. He made the church, but then he made this church for you to come. God has been acting. He's been saving you. He's been working in your soul. He's been giving you power over your sins. He's been leading you in his will and using you in the, in the community. He's been working. 
and we come and respond to that work. That's what worship, worship starts with God. And by the way, worship is already going on in heaven. They're forever saying, holy, holy, holy are you. And in Revelation chapter 4, you can read all about that. It's ongoing. So when we come in here, we're actually stepping into a party that has been in progress. We are coming in saying, let us join heaven's song. Let us participate in this celebration of the king of all, of the one who gave his life for us. So worship doesn't start with us. Worship starts with God. Worship happens when we come and recognize that. Um, so to worship God is to serve him. Here we are. You've acted. We thank you. We receive what you're doing. We give it back to you. We want you more of you in our lives. Um, and all this comes down to say, like, worship is not just when we get to express ourselves, like, how much I love you. Worship's also, and more importantly, formative. It's when God, it's when we acknowledge that God is here and he's forming us. He's saying, this is how I want you to think. This is how I want you to love. This is how I want you to live. This is what I want you to do for me. And we say, yes, my Lord, my King. Yes, sir. And that, when we go out, is worship, being formed by him. See, friends, if we are primarily concerned with expressing ourselves and our needs to God in worship, we won't be formed for suffering. We will instead say, why did you not answer my prayers, God? Why is this happening? But if we come to him and worship him and are formed by him, we will see the entire week from Sunday to Sunday and every morning and evening in your prayer lives, like, this rhythm of this is what God's doing, this is what God's doing, this is what God's doing, because worship is about him acting. It's not about us showing him how much we love him. That's a contest of pride. It's about us submitting our lives to his love. I mean, think about this. And I apologize to anyone online who needs to be online because your immunity system is what it is. Like, that's a totally different ballgame, but there are many people through COVID who have chosen the couch over church, Right? watching online, or the podcast is our means of, man, we got to be podcast proof. Like that's not a worshiper because here's, this is what many are choosing to do, but here's what that actually says. We need to understand that worship is not our consumption of God. Worship is God's consumption of us. We are consumed by his presence and his being. Let me say that again because it's so important. We live in a world that teaches us to be consumers of everything. But in worship, God says, wait, don't rush in. You are not a consumer of me. I want to consume all of you. And as we give our lives to him, he then says, now let me take care of your needs. Here's the body. Here's the blood of Christ. Take and eat. In my studies of early Christianity, um, they worshipped in this way. It was robust. It was God-centered, Christ-centered. And they were formed for the world that they lived in. They were, they were protected from becoming like Caesar or admiring Caesar or giving in to, yeah, yeah, we'll pinch incense and worship Jesus. Jesus doesn't, he is Lord or he's not at all. That's, that's what we're being called to. And, and we, can, we can trust this because Paul says this is a trustworthy saying. Of all the things in the Bible, here's one of the trustworthy sayings that if we die with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. That is worth whatever it takes. as worth being formed in our worship. Lord, help us.